This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Imagine a vacuum the size of a football field. If you're a salmon in Oregon, you may get acquainted soon. It looks like a like a giant floating industrial building with fish tanks and plumbing. It's Wednesday, November 8th, but of course, today is Science Friday. I'm Sci-Fi producer Kathleen Davis. Oregon's Willamette River Valley has a whole bunch of dams, which have had a huge negative impact on the population of wild salmon. The Army Corps of Engineers wants to use a giant vacuum to suck up salmon and transport them downriver. We will talk about that wild plan, but first, Dee Peter Schmidt speaks with Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson, a marine biologist who curated an exhibit about our possible climate futures. I talked to Ayana, along with artist Erica Demon, one of the exhibit's three artists, about reconnecting with nature, food justice, and why the exhibit is called Climate Futurism. Ayana started by answering that question. The question that I've been asking myself for a few years now is, what if we get it right? There's so much like apocalypse, doom in filmmaking, in social media, that I feel like we've lost the ability to imagine the future that we want. And so when I think of climate futurism, I think about, okay, we have basically all the climate solutions we need. What if we actually implemented them? And so with this show, I was glad to have the opportunity to engage with artists around these questions of what is the climate future we want to create? What should we take with us and what should we leave behind? My name is Erica Demon. I am a visual artist and I am sharing work as part of this installation. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Erica lived in Seattle during 2021, which was the hottest summer on record for the city. She also had access to a garden there and was reminded of the farm her parents once had in Jamaica. But then as I researched more and went into my family's history and time in Jamaica, I was really inspired by what Jamaican farmers were doing with the land and with the acknowledgement of the change in the climate. Erica learned that Jamaica is experiencing declining rainfall due to climate change, which is forcing farmers to find new ways to tend to their crops. Some have partnered with the UN on a program that uses water tanks to collect rainfall from roofs, allowing farmers to stock up on water during dry periods. It made her think about how this adaptability to climate change is connected to the adaptability of the Black diaspora, faced with the historical loss of sovereignty amidst the backdrop of the Middle Passage and colonialism. For Erica, adaptability is a crucial component to Ayana's question, what if we get it right? So I have seeds from England, where I'm born, and Jamaica, sourced from Black farmers in the U.S. And so I embedded these seeds into this plaster that I hand-painted. 
The result is about 500 of these seed-embedded gypsum plaster shards suspended from the ceiling. The piece is called Give Us Back Our Bones. That history became really important to think about how we have got to this moment in time where the planet is changing its environment and how that narrative fits into it. But also there is this distinct possibility, which I think Ayana is talking to, which is getting it right. And for me, the seeds kind of represent that possibility. In initially hearing Erica describe her work was that she was imagining this art installation as a portal, as a place where people could ponder their own histories and think about how they want to create the future and what they might have to offer. Erica is joined by exhibits from poet Denise Froman and visual artist Olaleikin Jayafus, who also weaved in their family's histories to consider possible futures with our changing climate in mind. In the program for the exhibition, Ayana writes that she wanted the show to jolt the viewer from a, quote, doomerous resignation around climate change. I asked her what she meant by that, and she told me that she just doesn't think it's useful. Like, we don't get to give up on life on Earth. She gestures wildly <laughs> into the void. <laughs> um, and I honestly just think that's really boring. What are you going to do, like sit on the couch and watch the world burn and melt around you? And so nothing about this show assumes that the future will be easy, but we literally have to make the future that we want to live in because the difference between one degree of warming and five degrees of warming is hundreds of millions of people's lives. So it actually does matter even if we get it partially right. And I guess that can sound incrementalist, but I think it's just realist. I'm not an optimist. I'm, you know, a scientist. I know what those scientific projections are, but I also know that all of those projections show very clearly that there is a range of possible futures. And so my work is trying to be a part of making sure we have one of the best possible futures. And I just feel like there hasn't been enough discussion of what future we actually want and how we're going to like all get there and not leave some groups behind the same groups that always get left behind. So this is also a show about justice, because if we get there and leave poor people, communities of color, coastal communities, our diasporas behind, then like that's not a future that I want. Ayanna wasn't alone in thinking about justice as a part of our climate futures. All of the art in the exhibit tie in farming in some way, and the power that comes from growing your own food. As we were talking, Ayanna was reminded of a quote from the civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer. When you've got 400 quarts of greens and gumbo soup canned up for the winter, nobody can push you around or tell you what to do. So the thought of like the Black and Caribbean diaspora mashing up with food and culture and regenerative agriculture, like what if climate adaptation is beautiful, right? And so the words that I, you know, hold on to that are really the theme of my book of that same, same title, What If We Get It Right, are possibility and transformation. And that's kind of what I'm hoping that people take away from this show is the huge amount of possibility that exists and the gargantuan amount of transformation that needs to happen to deal with climate change and create a climate futurism that actually works for real people. Climate Futurism at Pioneer Works in Brooklyn, New York will be running until December 10th. For Science Friday, I'm Dee Peterschmidt. 
On this week's On the Media, does the rise of X signal the fall of traditional right-wing outlets? You don't have to have this website and a link that people have to click on. You can just say stuff and you can get attention. You know, you don't need to be Breitbart to do that anymore. Also, what does decolonization really mean? On this week's On the Media from WNYC. Find On the Media wherever you get your podcasts. Oregon's Willamette River Valley is home to 13 dams, which have the important job of making sure water is at the right place at the right time. But these dams have the unfortunate side effect of trapping salmon and preventing them from getting where they want to go. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers has a novel solution for this problem that may seem surprising. A floating vacuum the size of a football field, which will suck up the salmon, load them onto trucks, haul them down the river to be put back in. If your reaction to this plan is, huh? Well, you're not alone. Joining me to talk about this is Tony Schick, reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting and ProPublica based in Portland. Welcome back to Science Friday. Hey, thank you so much for having me. This sounds a little bit wild. Let's let's start with the problem here. Of course, the the fish want to go back up river, and the dam is in the way. All of them, right? Well, the fish want to go down river first, and they're in the way for that too. So uh-huh. the fish are born uh, in the streams up above the dams, and are trying to migrate down river to the ocean. And the dam blocks their journey down river, and it blocks their journey up river too. They have been massive impediments, and they are what biologists cite as the dominant factor in driving several of these species to the endangered list. Wow. I, but the plan I described briefly seems, if I might coin a phrase, a little bit bananas here. Tell us the details. This is really a, a giant fish vacuum. How big is this? Yeah. So that's not me being flippant when I describe it as a fish vacuum. That's how the Corps of Engineers biologists described it to me. It looks like a like a giant floating industrial building with fish tanks and plumbing. And what it does is it uses pumps to create an inflow of water. And so it's sucking up water. And the idea is to create a big enough flow of water that the fish think, oh, that's the current I'm supposed to follow downstream because these salmon are you know, hardwired to make their way downstream and to follow a flowing current. That's part of the problem with having these reservoirs behind dams is like it's stagnant water. So it's preventing the salmon from their typical migration downstream. And so the idea is essentially to trick these fish into thinking this is the way downstream. And then they get caught in these traps and then they're held in in tanks. They're transported onto a truck and then they are driven downstream around one dam or uh, maybe multiple dams in some cases, uh, and then releasing them back into the water. And then they would then capture the adult fish once they come back, you know, a few years later from the ocean. And that's something they've been doing for a while. Adult trap and haul, uh, as they call it, is fairly commonly used practice for these uh, high head dams, the dams that are very tall and and very difficult to construct some sort of fish ladder that the fish can just swim past. Is is this the easiest solution to this problem? I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, you're going to be stressing the fish and who knows what. Why has this plan gotten the most traction? In short, it's not the most 
simple solution. There are other things you can do at a flood control dam, which these dams are primarily used for flood control. They do have other uses, but they were primarily built for flood control. And what you can do there is you can open up the various gates in the dams. You can open up, they're called regulating outlets that you use to kind of regulate you know, the, the height of the reservoir or the temperature or the flow, you can open those up and essentially drain the reservoir down to the level of those outlets. So the fish can, can get through those outlets. Those outlets can safely pass fish, but they're normally at a depth that's, that's way too deep for salmon to get to because salmon are oriented to the surface. And so if you just drain those to the point where the salmon can find them, you can pass a lot of fish. And at some of these dams, at one in particular, they have experimented with draining the reservoir all the way basically to the creek bed. And they have a dam where it's configured in a way that it can kind of facilitate that. And they've seen tremendous success with with passing fish. And the core reports that they have uh, seen a tenfold increase in the number of adult salmon coming back at that dam. It's called Fall Creek Dam because of draining the reservoir. And and what that does is it flushes all of the fish downstream. They have like 99% successful passage. It also kind of restores temporarily, at least, you know, river conditions. And so you're getting rid of the reservoir temporarily. And so you don't have the reservoir conditions where invasive species like bass or northern pike minnow uh, that really like those, you know, warmer stagnant lakes, it's it's getting rid of a lot of those. And so the reservoir becomes not so perilous for salmon. Right. Well, well, if that works so well, why go to this kind of scale? I mean, it doesn't seem like uh, this is going to be sustainable in the long run? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is the Army Corps says they're operating kind of within a box that Congress has kind of designed for them in terms of how they can operate. So they have all of these uses authorized for the dams, storing water, hydropower, recreation. And if you're draining the reservoirs, that is sacrificing those other uses. And Corps says that they're not able to do that or allowed to to do that and sacrifice all of these other uses because they are uses that Congress has authorized for them. And until Congress says otherwise, that's what they're going to do. Yeah. I, 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 what, what's the projection, though, for how many fish the Army Corps' project will save? So their projections are that these fish collectors can collect somewhere between 80 and 90 some percent of fish. Mm-hmm. And will this actually stop the possible extinction? Of the fish, if, if you can get that? The core says so. There are a lot of people who are more skeptical of that. So at a couple of these locations where they're trying these fish collectors, it's going to result in two-way trap and haul, as I described. You trap the juvenile fish, truck them downstream. You trap the adult fish, bring them back up. There was a review of this in 2017 by some researchers at University of California, Davis, where they examined this in the context of it being proposed for salmon in California. And they concluded that there is no such program that can be considered a success of this two-way trap and haul. Uh, They said any such program should proceed with extreme caution. Those are their words. And that in conclusion, they said it won't save salmon. It will merely prolong their path to extinction. Now, I will say the Corps biologist 
in the area, Greg Taylor, has been frank with me about the uncertainties involved in their plan. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to go back and look at how these structures performed in other locations to see that there's been some challenges. So what we can do and what we have done is gone back and looked really hard at those designs and tried to incorporate every single thing we think can help a structure at our site collect fish in the most efficient way possible to be successful. Yeah, so these fish collectors have a really spotty track record. There are some that have been successful. There's one on the Clackamas River, which is also on the Willamette system owned by a private company that has been quite successful. The difference is that's a very small reservoir. It doesn't fluctuate up and down like these flood control uh, reservoirs do. And it also operates what's called run of river. Basically, the water that comes in flows out. They're not impounding lots of water behind the dams, creating this stagnant lake. So they have all of these things going for them at this dam that the Army Corps Willamette dams don't have. And they're aware of that. So what's what's next for this plan? Is it uh, still going strong? Can we expect an update? So the Corps has to finalize its plan for Willamette River salmon by the end of 2024 under a court order. And the next step is has to get approved by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. And NOAA scientists said that they are confident in these fish collectors, that they believe that the core can improve on designs they've seen elsewhere and that they they do have confidence that it will work. Well, well, we'll check in and check back with you, Tony, okay? Thanks for taking time to be with us today. Thanks so much. Take care. Tony Schick, reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting and ProPublica, based in Portland, Oregon. And that's all the time that we have for today. A lot of folks helped make the show happen, including Annie Nero, Jason Rosenberg, Rasha Aridi, Shoshana Buxbaum, and many more. Next time, we'll talk about how five elements tell the story of life on our planet. I'm Sci-Fi producer Kathleen Davis. We will catch you then. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts.